0: This morning we're going to be considering God's salvation grace and we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 9 through to 12. Last week we we were considering what it is like to be a Christian to be someone who has a God-given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith that you have gives you exceeding joy but also You experience a lot of anguish and pain as God puts you through various trials in order to prove your faith and improve it. As the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Today we shall consider the end or the goal of a lively faith in which there is joy unspeakable as well as fiery trials. What's it all about? The answer is given in verse 9. The salvation of your souls. As it is written in verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. The verse starts with the words receiving the end of your faith, where receiving is in the present tense. As such, just as the unspeakable joy back in verse 8 is a present reality, despite all the painful trials of your faith, which are also a present reality, so too is the salvation of your souls a present reality. If you are a born-again Christian, having been chosen by God for salvation before the foundation of the world, you are someone who is trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin. You believe that Jesus has fulfilled the law's demands and that his obedience is credited to your account. You believe that he bare your sins in his body at the cross and that he has reconciled you to God. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And you believe that you have everlasting life through faith in him. At least I hope you do. All that I have just said with regards to what you believe is a present reality having the righteousness of Christ, your sins being atoned for, the everlasting life, and so on. No wonder Peter spoke about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Having said that receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, is a present reality, the salvation of your soul also has a future aspect such as when when you enter into the presence of Jesus at death. Also, when Jesus comes again in judgment at the end of the world, your body will be redeemed from death and corruption, and it will be glorified and reunited with your soul. Also, you will receive from Jesus your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Therefore, even though the trials that God gives you are painful and even though the fiery furnace that God is refining you in is at times extremely hot, you nevertheless rejoice exceedingly because of so great salvation that you have and that you will have. We'll move on to the next three verses, verses 10 Through to 11. I'll read them now. Sorry, 10 through to 12. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, And the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. God's choice of people for salvation was settled before the foundation of the world. For example, in Ephesians chapter one and verse four, the apostle Paul said, according as he have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Likewise, before God ever said, let there be light on the first day of creation, he determined that his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the sacrificial lamb. For example, in verses 19 and 20 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter spoke about the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Having worked out his salvation plan before the foundation of the world, God did not hang on until the incarnation of his son to declare it. In verses 10 through to 12, the apostle Peter explained that the prophets of old proclaimed it. The Lord Jesus Christ testified to that fact. After his resurrection, he was walking with two of his disciples and he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in John's gospel Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. When Jesus referred to the scriptures, he was talking about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament back then. Jesus was saying that the Old Testament scriptures testify of him. They are about him. Just one of the many clear examples of the gospel of Christ being proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets can be found in Psalm 22, where David said, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. That account of the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ came from the mouth of King David, who was also a prophet of God. As a prophet, he spoke as he was moved by the Holy Ghost about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so about a thousand years before Jesus was nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up to die. Another graphic account of the suffering of Jesus can be found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, where the prophet Isaiah said, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. When I read those verses, I'm reminded of a story about a young American Jew who was backpacking around Europe And he was invited to a Bible study when he was in Holland. Those verses were read to him, and he was asked whom the passage was about. He replied, "Your Jesus, of course." It was then pointed out to him that those words came from the prophecy of Isaiah, a Jew. It would seem that that young man's trip to Europe took him to the cross of Christ as a repentant sinner, and he trusted in Jesus as his Saviour from sin. Coming back to 1 Peter, chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, we are told that the prophets of old inquired and searched diligently what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In other words, they did not necessarily understand what they were talking about when they were moved by the Spirit of Christ to speak about salvation from sin and about the Saviour. However, those prophets diligently studied what they said. Clearly they were filled with a desire to know when and where these things would happen. They longed to see that period of grace for themselves. Also, they would have found at least some of the answers as they diligently studied other people's prophecies. They certainly did study each other's prophecies as well as their own. For example... The prophet Daniel lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity, and he knew how long that captivity would, uh, would last for, from studying the prophetic writing of the prophet Jeremiah. Furthermore, Daniel's contemporaries and the prophets who came after him would have learned when Christ would come, if only they diligently studied his prophecies. For example, in Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26, it is written, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall Even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The seven weeks and threescore and two weeks translate into 40, sorry, 434 years. And that period of time takes us from when the Medo-Persian rulers issued decrees allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple right up to the start of the earthly ministry of Messiah the Prince, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is the prophet Micah. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. In Micah's prophecy, he declared the birthplace of Christ when he said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Perhaps... As Isaiah longed for the coming of Christ and he inquired diligently, he learned maybe where he, where the Christ would be born when he read Micah's prophecy. The reason I'm going into so much detail about what the Old Testament prophets said concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death is to show you just how much can be learned about the Saviour when you apply yourself to diligently search the Old Testament prophecies as you look to the Spirit of Christ to enlighten you. You'll find that the Old Testament prophecies are a veritable treasure chest filled to the top and rich in details about the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we move on to verse 12, Have you noticed that the pre-existence of Jesus is set forth in verse 11 where God the Holy Spirit, who was in the Old Testament prophets, is referred to by the Apostle Peter as the Spirit of Christ? That tells us that Jesus existed in the Old Testament times. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus Christ is clearly presented in the New Testament, and also in the Old Testament prophecies as the eternal Son of God. For example, in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, the following is said about Jesus. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Coming now to verse 12, it is written, Unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you, by them that have preached the gospel unto you, With the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The Old Testament prophecies concerning the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ and His exaltation were for us. That doesn't mean to say that those prophecies were an irrelevance to the prophets and to the Old Testament saints in general. Far from it. Faith comes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As a result of what they heard, they had faith in Christ who was to come into the world to save sinners. Whereas our faith is in Christ who came into the world about 2000 years ago to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. However, Unlike us now, the prophets did not have the full revelation of God's salvation plan that we now have in the pages of the New Testament. In that sense, we are greatly blessed. As the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. With your completed Bible, you can prayerfully read in the New Testament detailed accounts of Jesus, such as when he was at the top of the mountain, and his face shone like the sun, and his raiment was as white as light. You can prayerfully read about Jesus being in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And you can prayerfully read about Jesus laying down his life when he was lifted up to die. In Psalm 119 verse 30 it is written the entrance of thy words giveth light it giveth understanding unto the simple the light of revelation is the same light whether it is in the old testament prophecies or in the pages of the new testament it's just that it becomes more radiant in the new testament with John the Baptist proclaiming the beginning of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ with the words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Interestingly, John the Baptist was in a sense the last of the Old Testament prophets, and even he did not have as much light as we now have. He was imprisoned and put to death before Jesus laid down his life and rose victorious. In fact, when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent two of his own disciples to Jesus. They said to him, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? You need to understand that John the Baptist had been proclaiming a Christ of grace and judgment, who has a fan or a winnowing fork in his hand, and who will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist had seen a lot of grace coming from Jesus, but he saw no judgment. So even John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets, had an incomplete understanding of Jesus. He did not know that judgment would come later. When you look at verse 12, you can see at the end of the verse that even the angels desire to look into his glorious salvation. In other words, even the angels don't fully understand The great things concerning salvation from sin and that most, that most certainly does not mean that they do not have the intellect. It's just that in heaven, they cover their faces in fear and in reverence in the presence of the son of God. As such, it is beyond them how the, how the king of glory was nailed to a wooden cross by wicked men. Those elect angels are without sin. How are they supposed to understand the Son of God having the iniquity of wicked men laid upon him by God the Father? I like what Spurgeon said about the angels desiring to look into these things. And I warn you, it comes with a challenge as we come to a close. He said, angels have never sinned. Consequently, they need no atonement or forgiveness. Never having been defiled, they need not be washed. Yet they take a deep interest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What then shall I say of the madness of those who are defiled by sin, but have no interest in the fountain where they can be washed whiter than snow? Let us note furthermore, so that it may humble us, that angels have keen intellects. They far excel us, yet though they have learned so much about the gospel, they still desire to look into it. Does anyone suppose that he knows all about the gospel and does not need further hours of study, thought and prayer? Poor, miserable fool. Angels, who are vastly superior to us in intelligence, desire to learn and know more. This is a grand thing, as the angels are such deep students of the things of God. Let us try to be the same. Dear Christian, do you diligently search the scriptures, all of which testify of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your salvation from sin in him. Can you appreciate something of that earnest desire of the prophets of old to see the period of grace that started when the Son of God became flesh? And I say that because, as a New Testament believer, I most certainly look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when he shall come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory at his second coming. Finally, in the 66 books of the Bible, we have the light of revelation concerning Jesus and salvation from sin through faith in his name. It behoves you to diligently search the scriptures And may God be pleased to make the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine in your heart, every one of you. Amen.